Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So uh, session two, session two, um, we're going to, uh, we're going to do the second part of what I, I thought we would cover last week, um, uh, kind of uh, walk us through the outline, and then we'll get to it. And then I'm going to, in a few moments, I'm, I'm going to invite uh, you folks to, to share a little bit. So I'm going to just plant the seed because we're going to talk about the Torah this week. So I'll be interested if anyone is willing to share. I'll be interested to hear uh, people just talk about uh, their relationship with the Torah, what the Torah means to them, has meant to them. And by the Torah, I mean, I don't, you know, sometimes Torah is used to mean something very vast. Uh, I, I, I mean, very specifically the Torah. I mean, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Breshit, Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Devarim, um, that book, I'm interested in uh, talking about that book because, as you know, the subtitle, and we're going to parse the subtitle in this class, the subtitle is Rereading the Torah as a Spiritual Handbook. So um, so while I'm just kind of introducing things, you can start to, it's okay, I don't mind if you're, if you're not paying full attention to this part, you can just start to think about, you know, what, hmm, what is, you can ask yourself the question, what is my, what is my relationship with with that uh, that document, that book, that artifact, that object, um, and uh, what does it mean to me? So, so I'm hoping I'm hoping folks will feel brave and uh, and share a little bit. Um, but for now, let's uh, let's just kind of talk about where we're going. Um, so this is this is the title of the course. Um, this is this is. Uh, what I what I imagine we'll cover today, but who knows? We may cover less. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm certain we won't cover more. That's for sure. Um, so we'll do a quick summary of last week's session. Then we'll do a bit of a deep dive on on the subtitle of the course, rereading the Torah as a spiritual handbook. We're going to talk about the Torah. We're going to talk about reading the Torah, and then we're going to talk about spiritual handbooks. You know, what do I mean by these things? And then if we have time, uh, we'll do practice zero. Remember, this is this is about uh, practice. We're going to talk about that uh, throughout the course. Um, and so either today or next week, we'll do practice zero. And by practice zero, I mean simply it's it's – it's the foundational practice. It's the practice of all practices. Um, and it's one that you're familiar with, but maybe maybe I'll present it in a way that's fresh. Um, and if not, then then a reminder will work just fine. Um, so that's, that's the plan. Um, uh, let's just do the summary. So uh, last time uh, we talked about practicing and I shared some definitions in brief. Why? Why? Why should we practice? Why would we practice? Simply because we want to habituate certain ways of being and we want to cultivate skillfulness. That's what I'm proposing. Um, I remember I, I think last week I quoted Sylvia Borstein um, 
at the first time I spoke with her, or we spoke on the phone. It was during it was during COVID, actually. We spoke on the phone, and she had just celebrated or was just about to celebrate her 85th birthday. And I I said to her, you know, what what are you what are you reflecting on? And she said, Well, I've been thinking about my life's work. And it occurs to me that my life's work has been trying to help people to habituate their mind to a more compassionate response. Um, so right there, the, habituating your mind to a more compassionate response, there's habituation, because the word habituate is in there, and it's also skillful, right? The compassionate response is a skillful use of the mind. Um, so we want to practice because we want to habituate certain ways of being, and we want to cultivate skill. And I'm I'm not a believer, and maybe it's just because I'm not old enough yet, but I'm hoping you'll agree with me. I'm not a believer in that old saying about old dogs and new tricks. I uh, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think that uh, uh, if we're willing to engage in practice, we can cultivate uh, skill uh, in new ways at any stage uh, of our lives. In fact, maybe in some ways that may be a definition of what it is to be alive. Um, so that's the first thing. Why practice? Then we talked about why practice Judaism. Very simply, wake up, do good. It's not to say there aren't other benefits from practicing Judaism. There are there are many benefits: gastronomic, social, uh, intellectual, uh, many benefits. Uh, you know, but ultimately, ultimately, uh, Judaism, uh, like uh, any other uh, wisdom or spiritual or religious tradition, at its best, uh, is interested in uh, waking up. Right? Do you remember that verse? From Genesis, right? Jacob awoke from his slumber, right? And he and he said, right? It's, it's truly Adonai is in this place. So he woke up. And then uh and then now you're awake. Uh the way you know you're awake is uh, do you know well, you know what is expected of you? And that's that's the last the second. Do good, do good. So why practice Judaism? Wake up, do good. And if Judaism is not is not helping you achieve those two things, try something else. Um, I'm, I, some things work for some people; other things work for other people. That's fine. Um, this is not about uh, this is not a subscription program. I'm not selling memberships. Uh, I'm not even a I'm not even a salesman for Judaism. I'm, I'm a salesman for waking up and doing good, and I think Judaism can help people do that. But I understand that. Uh, um, I understand its market share um, and, and, and accept that. So that's the second piece we covered last week. And then finally, what's so special about the 21st century? In, in a word, oi. Uh, oi, a big oi. Um, we don't need to go into that whole thing again, but uh, but it's bad and it's going to get worse. So um, so the, you know, the importance of uh, being awake and doing good is, is, is maybe heightened um, uh, not not only in in relation to the extent of the oi, but also, frankly, um, in terms of our own capacity to be resilient in the face of uh, of what's taking place. Um, so that's that's kind of what we covered last last time. Um, and now we'll uh, now we'll move to the subtitle: rereading the Torah as a spiritual handbook. So let, let's just. Uh, Let's take another, you know, 60 seconds. I'll stop talking and give you a chance to re revisit those questions. You know, what does the Torah mean to me and what is my relationship to the Torah? And then uh, as someone, if, if you feel moved, you know, uh, unmute yourself 
and uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Well, thanks for starting us off, Aglaia. Aglaia wrote, the Torah made me change my mind about religion. Gosh, I want to hear more about that. So you can either type in the chat or, or we'll just wait till next week with bated breath when you're hopefully feeling better. I can say, I can talk a little bit, but um, I used to think of it as religion as opiate of the masses. And then Torah made me change my mind about that. So uh, uh, that it's not an opiate or that it's not for the masses or both? Religion, I stopped thinking of it as the opiate of the masses. Can, can you say, one, I'm going to just one more uh, question. Can you say a little bit about how you think about it now because of your encounter with the Torah? Um, I noticed that it solves a lot of problems um, for me. And when I'm not actually even expecting in a lot of weird ways that I'm not expecting. Yeah. yeah I'll read something from the Torah. And the next thing I know, I have a, the answer to a life question that I really was not expecting. Amen. Isn't that something? Okay. So then if I, let me just uh, not to put words in your mouth, but what I heard, what I heard you saying is that the, the Torah is uh, to use actually the words you used it. it it's a problem solving uh, device for you in some ways and unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Unexpectedly. Well, that's kind of magical. And I, I use that word uh, in, a, in its most positive sense. <laughs> um, someone else. Thanks, Aglaia. Sander. The Torah uh, and I have a personal relationship. Um, it's a, uh, that's described in their prayers as connected. And so I accept that. And it can, it, it, I, each time I, I read the cycle of it in the commentary and often a new, often a new commentary, which has been really important to me in my studies, um, something else comes up. It's continually revealing uh, um, ideas and, and uh and even instructions uh, that guide my life and reinforce. So that's how I feel about it. Thank you. You you said uh, you said connected, but you didn't translate it. Can you, how would you translate that? Um, in to be compared to, in contrast to, um, that's how. It's like a reflection. It's like a relationship between husband and wife. They, they, you, you learn from each other. You grow together. So the, the Torah is way ahead of me, but I still learn from it. <laughs> you know, the continued revelation is is spectacular. Like it's like a like a an instruction instruction manual, a guide. Thanks. Uh, Stan wrote, uh, "The Torah is a guidepost for life, but only if accompanied with Talmud." Gamora. Okay. Okay. So for so for you, Stan, it 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 needs this additional layer uh, to serve in that role. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is it Steve? Is that a hand up? Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I see it a little bit differently. Uh, all of my life, I have felt the need and desire to be good. However, I. I cannot for the life of me recall anybody ever telling me that be good, do good things. Um, I think the desire to do good is innate. You look at a little baby and all of a sudden it starts turtling and laughing hysterically. And, and those pictures of little kids giggling 
let's say three months old, four months old, is their simplistic way of, of being good, doing good. So because I believe doing good is innate, I think Torah is wake up and don't do bad as opposed to wake up and do good. I think goodness is innate. Lovely, lovely. So, so a, like a reminder, a wake-up call, uh, something like that. Yeah. Yes. Lovely. Yes. Lovely. I, uh, thanks for that, um, Ronnie. Were you going to go? Sure. Um, I I love what everybody is saying about the opening and waking up and and awareness and um, just having the Torah being among the Torah. I think gives us that. But I also really. Um, love that no matter where we are and we go into a synagogue we know there's a torah we know there could be multiple torahs and they all have their own story where they came from just like we do so not only do i connect with the stories but i connect almost physically as like a a human source of education in that um kodesh. so yeah i i think They're it's really an nice. interesting question for sure Thanks for that. I what I, I, I tell me. Hopefully, I'm not uh, putting words in your mouth either. But I, I what I heard was the sense of familiarity, which is something like you see an old friend. Yes, like an old friend that you know is going to be there anytime you go visit. Love it's that. Just, you know, we I don't see. have that in any other. So yeah. Beautiful. Yes, we do. Oh, oh, we do. Okay. Well, maybe Ronnie doesn't, but maybe you do, Judith. Let's hear what you want to say. Doing good is certainly not limited to people who are capable of reading the Torah or even reading. An animal can do good. I, in my German shepherd years ago, if a baby was coming near her, she would turn her paw so that the baby would only reach the soft side and not get hurt. And most animals, cats, dogs, even birds, it can offer solace. They know when their person is not happy or is having a problem, and they just offer a, it may be a mute understanding, it may be a physical understanding, but it is certainly capable of giving aid, help, comfort, and they certainly don't read anything, much less the Torah. <laughs> So uh, thank you for that. So well, tell me about uh, what the Torah is for you, Judith. It's it's another piece of me. It's part of me. Oh. It's <laughs> part of my lifestyle. Ah. It's part of how I interact with others. Mm. Lovely. And they may not have ever heard of the Torah. Uh-huh. Since my my contacts are not limited to Orthodox jewelry or any kind of jewelry. Uh huh. Thanks. Thanks for that. This is lovely, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know it's, about you. It's Everyone lovely. Else this it nice warm lovely. It's lovely seeing you again. It's and nice I, to see you, Judith. It's a real pleasure. And, and since. The Torah is the study. The Torah is part of why we are all seeing each other again. So that in itself is good. Oh, I love, thank you for that. So the Torah is convener, right? It brings people together. Also beautiful. Okay. Any others? 
Any others? Hannah, let's, you have to unmute. You have to unmute. Yes, yes. Okay. So I've been sitting here looking at what's special about the 21st century oi. Okay. And I think that I'm looking to what what is in the Torah that's going to make things better? Because right now, mm-hmm. I have a lot of fear about what life is going to be like. And I'm hoping the Torah reveals something that will make that better. Thank you. I will, um, say, I will say this. The, I've moved in a lot to a lot of different cities. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I have found in each one is a Jewish community. And it has been the help that I've needed when I was a stranger in a, a stranger in a strange place. So for me, the Torah brings us back to being Jewish. And Lovely. that's Lovely. whatever. And I and I love that. And I uh, the first thing you said, you know, about about the oi, it seems like you were saying that you you know, you hope the Torah is a bomb in some way, B-A-L-M, like yeah, like it, it somehow helps us with our anxiety, you know, with our worry. So I think that that's also, uh, right, you know, right, it's the tree of life to those who hold, who hold fast to it. So there's some idea of, of holding on to it, you know. Um, Thank you, Hannah. Uh, Catherine, you have a hand up. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think one of the reasons I took this course, a major reason, is how to utilize it in the 21st century. This past week, with the fires and with Trump and with all the craziness going on in the Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. how can I be a source of good? You know, I've used it in the old century, but I'm a little lost right now. So. I wandered in here thinking, well, how are you people doing that? How are you putting it into action or making it better? Thank you. Thanks, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, so, so for, for folks who feel lost, you know, can the Torah be a kind of a map? You know, can it help us find our way back to a place where we, where we feel found? You know, we don't have that feeling of being lost. Um, very rich just 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 take a mo- just take a moment to kind of appreciate all these things that we've heard and of course the torah is all of these things it's not all of them for everyone but <laughs> it's all of these things and uh um even though it's a it's an you know it's an object yeah I, I you know copies on my shelf and we see it in the ark in the synagogue it's it's also this very mysterious thing that it has these uh, multiple facets and multiple meanings. Um, so, um, so it, I'm gonna, if it's okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what the Torah means for me and how I've kind of thought about it and my relationship with it, so I can add my piece. Um, so let me go back here and uh, what? So I, I have a uh, actually. Before, let me unshare again. I, I have a. Uh, an unusual, I don't know if it's unusual, but uh, it feels unusual to me, maybe because it's not similar to anything else in my life. My relationship with the Torah is not similar to anything in my life. And um, 
and and the 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 origins of my relationship with it are, are somewhat mysterious i uh i'm going to show you a picture here you, you can you can see this picture here yeah so there's two pictures here so so the picture on the left which i'm i'm holding a copy of it here the picture on the left is a is a certificate um uh that comes from um from the uh from Chabad, you know, Chabad Lubavitch, you know, the Hasidim that are in every town, right? And the certificate says, uh, up here it says, Be'ezrat Hashem Yitbarach, you know, with the help of God, the blessed God. Ve'al k'tivat sefer Torah avur yalde Yisrael, and, and uh, you know, uh, based on the, the, for the writing of uh, sefer Torah for the children of Israel, the, um, by the hands of the the leadership of uh, of Chabad in the land of Israel in Kfar Chabad, there's a there's a town in Israel called Kfar Chabad, the city of Chabad where Chabad people live. Um, so this is like a this is like a certificate, right? That that we have the certificate. It says Teuda certifies certifies. Or certificate. This is a certificate. Vizot Litudaki, and this certifies that. And you see, there's a name. It says Kleinberg Darren. Uh, Kleinberg Darren. So I'm Darren Kleinberg. They misspelled my first name, but that's fine. Uh, this certifies that Darren Kleinberg cannot et uh, has purchased a letter in the Torah scroll of the children of Israel. That was written in Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, the city that was destroyed and then rebuilt, etc., etc. In the month of Sivan, in the month of Sivan, um, in the year Tafshin Mem Aleph, Tafshin Mem Aleph is uh, uh, Sivan, Tafshin Mem Aleph is June 1981. June 1981. Um, and according to a lot, according to at random, at random, <laughs> at random, <laughs> oh, the letter is in the book of Shemot, is in the book of Exodus, in Parshat Bishalach, in the Parsha of Bishalach. Bishalach is the um, uh, is the third Parsha in uh, in the book of Exodus, but Shemot uh, Bo B'Shalach, second or third Parsha, and it's the Parsha of the Jewish people coming out of the land of Egypt, the Exodus from Egypt. So this is a certificate. So I've I've had this I've had this certificate in my possession for as long as I remember, um, and uh, a few years ago, I said to my parents. Um, I said, where did I, where did we get this? I said, where did it come from? And my parents have no recollection. By the way, in 1981, I was five years old. So I was born in 1976. Um, I said to my parents, where did we get this? My parents have no recollection. They, 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 they don't, they, they don't even believe that I have it because I mean, they saw it, of course, but they have no recollection of it ever happening. And my family has no, uh, certainly at that stage in my life and our family's life had no involvement in the organized Jewish community, didn't want members of synagogues, didn't participate, didn't go for high holiday. I mean, didn't do anything with Jewish life. But when I was five years old, somehow uh, a letter uh, was written in a scroll in Jerusalem uh, on my behalf. Um, 
And that's uncanny, I, I find. that that's, that's something, again, I've been aware of that my whole life. And in some ways, I, I feel like that act, which I believe was an act of generosity and care by somebody, by somebody, uh, when I was five years old, has had this kind of guiding influence on my life. And so since then, uh, 42 years ago, I have been, um, I've been intertwined with the Torah. Uh, it, it, it just has been um, significant in, in my life. I, uh, I I started to go to Jewish day school when I was 11 years old in England, which is unusual in America. Usually if you grow up in an unreligious home, you don't often, you don't always end up going to a day school. It's less common here, but in England uh, it happens more often. And I went to day school and I started taking Jewish studies classes at age 11 and I remember my first my first Jewish studies teacher, Hannah Hertz. Uh, you know, she came from uh, you know kind of the old uh, world of Judaism. She wore she wore a shaitel and uh, was always dressed modestly and always kind of sang the class. You know, she would sing it in that sing song, that Jewish sing song voice. You know, um, and something about what was going on in that class captivated me. And uh, and she she essentially. Uh, introduced me to the world of Torah study. Um, at 13, I had a bar mitzvah, like a lot of people, um, although maybe not like a lot of people. Ever since that day, I felt like my bar mitzvah parsha was like a constellation. Um, and actually, I, I actually recommend people. Uh, this is, Here's a recommendation. If you know what your bar or your bar mitzvah parsha was, or even if you didn't have a bar about mitzvah, you can figure it out. You know, you can search it based on your birthday. You could take a look at that parsha, and you could think about, you know, how does this parsha tell me something about about my life? So I read Parshat Noah. I read the story of Noah, um, which, by the way, is uncommon in the Jewish world. If you think about it, right? It's the first Shabbat after the high holidays. Uh, most synagogues, right? Remember, most synagogues are not Orthodox synagogues, right? In the Orthodox community, you have your bar mitzvah on the date of your bar mitzvah. But in, in many non-Orthodox communities, which are the majority, the B'nai mitzvahs are scheduled. So most rabbis don't want to have a bar mitzvah the week after, uh, after Simchat Torah because they've been working really hard for the last month. And they, they don't want to have another one to do. So it's unusual that people have the Parsha of Noah as the... Um, as their bar mitzvah parsha, and it's of course an unusual parsha in the Torah because it's one of only three that isn't about Jews, right? Bereshit is not about Jews, the first parsha in the Torah. Noach is not about Jews, and Parshat Balak uh, in the Book of Numbers is not about Jews. Um, so I imagine that in some way that that had a role to play in my universal orientation. You know that I was I was bar mitzvahed on a on a parsha that was that was about human beings. Um, and the, uh, the line of that, of that uh, reading that has, has just, has been present in my mind since I read, uh, since I read it on the Bima, on the day of my Bar Mitzvah, was the description of Noach. Eile toldot Noach, Noach ish tzadik tamim haya bedoratav, et ha'elohim hitalech Noach. Right, this, this is the story of Noach. Noah was a simple, righteous person in his generation. He walked very closely with God. And it's just been clear to me ever since then, uh, sometimes less clear than others. I'll say it's clear to me now, 
that uh, that's all that's asked of us. Simple, righteous, walking closely with God. That's all we have to do in life. That's all we have to do. And, and, and I've spent most of my life trying to figure out what that might look like, how one might live into that, uh, live into that description. Sadiq tamim hayabadorotav, simple, righteous, in your generation, right? Et ha Elohim walking especially close with God. So I had a strong. The Torah was kind of a strong part, formative part of my uh, my early years, and then I um, later in life I I went after high school. I spent eight of the 10 years after high school in seminary, which when it was happening and for 10 or 15 years after never occurred to me as being unusual, but I now realize that's pretty unusual to go from high school to seminary and then spend eight out of the next 10 years there. Um, and I, uh, I was captivated not only by the Torah, but by the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. I, I found that to be um, uh, very engaging, even though in Orthodox seminaries where I was studying, um, most of the attention is on Talmud, not on Torah. And I remember once going to the head of the yeshiva, the head of the seminary, and I said to him, you know, I said, why do we spend so much time studying Talmud? Isn't the tradition that the Torah was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai? I mean, shouldn't we be paying more attention to that? And he said to me, um, he said to me, oh, you, you just have to read the Talmud and it will tell you which are the important parts of the Torah. And I'll tell you, uh, immediately when he said it, I knew he was wrong, which is quite a, you know, I more humbly, I would say I, I disagreed with him. But I think he was wrong. I think he was wrong. Um, um, uh, I don't don't need to I don't need to go to war with him over it. <laughs> I just I just disagree, and I I think I think that's incorrect. Um, I think the Torah not only stands on, on by itself, but needs to be encountered uh, by itself. It would be like trying to learn to get to know another person by asking a third person about them. Right? This is not how we come to know uh, something intimately. So even when I was in seminary. Um, I, I knew that I, I was drawn. I was drawn to the Torah. And um, and then after that, starting actually uh, towards the end of my time in seminary when I was studying to be a rabbi, I then moved from kind of more traditional ways of studying Torah, which I appreciated and learned a lot about, and then started to engage in the kind of academic study of Torah. Um, you know, the history, the archaeology, the philology, the language, the just trying to understand the, the world in which um, the Torah was produced. And then the last thing I want to share, and then we'll get to some text, is, uh, is, this, is this other picture here on the right. And then I'll, and then I'll, I'll move to the content. Um, so during COVID... You know, a lot of people uh, took up new uh, um, skills. Uh, the, the people I know became expert bakers. They, they made sourdough, you know, as, as well as you could possibly imagine. I, I learned more about sourdough starters than I even knew uh, you could learn. Um, and that's great. And I really appreciated uh, uh, enjoying their sourdough bread and learning about the things that folks were doing. Um, 
But I did something different. I was uh, in, in December of 2020, when it was really in the, you know, the, the, the deep, dark part of COVID. Um, I was crossing the street from my house to go to the supermarket. And uh, I don't know how else to describe it. Maybe, you know, in, in, the, in the rabbinic tradition, there's this thing called a bat kol. You know, it's like a heavenly voice. And there are these stories about people hearing heavenly voices. So I have to be careful. If I say I heard a heavenly voice, you'll wonder if my head screwed on correctly. But uh, but here it is. I was crossing the street and I was in the parking lot of the of the uh, of the supermarket across the street. And uh, as clear as day, um, I don't want to say I heard because it wasn't auditory, but as clear as day in my mind, um, I understood that I had to write the Torah. Uh, you, you may know there's a tradition that there are 613 commandments in the Torah, 613 mitzvot. Um, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later. But the last of the 613, according to most counts, the last is the commandment to write yourself a Torah. It's a commandment. And the verse just appeared in my mind. Um, and actually, as I'm thinking about it now, and I remember it, I almost it was I was like an automaton, but an automaton for for the mystery. I I didn't I didn't make it into the supermarket. I turned around. I walked back to my house. I found a hardback journal and a uh, fine tipped sharpie, and I began to copy. And um, and over six months, I copied the Torah, copied the Torah from the first word to the last word. And this here is a picture of one of the pages. There's the sharpie. Here's the journal. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, it revealed things uh, that I didn't know were, were possible to be revealed about a book and about a time and about a place and about uh, history. Um, and... Uh, and what I'll say, the last thing I'll say is, and, and maybe this is more playful than serious, but uh, but I think I think I was writing it right there in the beginning. I, I think of myself, uh, some part of myself, I don't know which part of it, being a, uh, I don't know, somehow got reincarnated in this body that one of the scribes that was sitting there in the fifth century or the fourth century before the common era, um, I, f- I feel like that that's, that's part of my my part of my inheritance uh, in terms of my relationship with this document. Um, so I'm deeply intertwined with it, um, and it's had a, a formative role in in my life also. Um, and so when I say you know the subtitle is rereading the Torah uh, as a spiritual handbook, um, you know uh, that gives you a sense of as, of of how I'm coming to this conversation, you know, what my orientation is um, in coming to this. Um, so let's, uh, let's look at some ideas. So what I want to do is first, I want to start and say, you know, some of you might be listening and thinking like, boy, I, maybe the people that didn't speak, I don't know, but I don't really, uh, I don't really know what all these people are talking about. I don't have a relationship with the Torah. It's, I don't, so what I want to start off by saying is that's fine too. Uh, one doesn't have to be a, uh, engaged deeply or even not deeply with the Torah uh, to be a, a terrible phrase to be a good Jew. That, that's not that's not required. It's not a 
It's not required at all. In fact, what could be a Jew completely adjacent to, to the world of Torah? And of course, many people are. And so I just want to start with one uh, kind of historical observation to make this point. Um, because I don't want to sound like a, like an ideologue for, for, for the Torah. That's not the case at all. Um, you know, just because I love my wife doesn't mean I need you to love her too, right? Same thing. <laughs> so that, that's what I want to be clear about. So I, there's this wonderful uh, um, a book that I read uh, last year about the Jews of Elephantine. So maybe you know about Elephantine. It's this tiny little island in the Nile in the southeastern part of Egypt. I mean, it's tiny. It's like 4,000 feet by, by 1,200 feet. It's tiny, but people lived on the, on the island. And there was a Jewish community there. So on this book by the kind of leading scholar of the Jews of Elephantine, he writes that Elephantine in the 4th to 5th centuries BCE, 2,500 years ago, it was possible to be a Jew and a polytheist. Yes, it was possible to be a Jew and have your own temple far away from Jerusalem. It was possible to be a Jew, marry an Egyptian wife, and, and still have Jewish children. It was possible to be a Jew and never read the Torah because there was as yet no Torah. It was possible to be a Jew and never read the Torah because there was as yet no Torah. Right? That's, that seems important to me that being Jewish precedes the Torah. Right? Um, that seems important to me. Um, to anyone who hears it, the story of the Elephantine community is a reminder of the fact that the story of the Jews has many chapters. To believe that every chapter tells the same story in a slightly different way would be a big mistake. There are, there are, there are vast differences across time and space. Um, and uh, in some ways, you know, you know, some people said the Torah is like a problem-solving device for them. Some talked about it as a convener. Some talked about it as a bomb. You know, for any of the things that people said, if, if anyone else doesn't have that relationship to the Torah, then they're also a kind of a Jew before that Torah has come into being. You understand? Because that version of the Torah hasn't come into being for them. Um and so uh, I just, I just after we've all shared these things, you know, um, I want to, I want to be very clear about this. That uh, uh, let me tell a little story that may illustrate it. Uh, you know, I should, I should preface the story by saying it's a story that can be mis misinterpreted as a kind of Buddhist triumphalist story. I don't mean it that way at all. Uh, I, I like to tell the story mostly because it makes me smile, but I think the point is an interesting one. So the story goes like this: you know, there's a, there's a rabbi goes to see a Zen monk in his town. Of course, the Zen monk is Jewish, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and the rabbi shows up at the Zendo, and he says to, uh, he says to the Zen monk, who's, uh, you know, before he took on his Buddhist name, his name was Shlomo. So the rabbi says, Shlomo, look, I understand meditation is very nice. Meditation is nice. Jews, we have meditation too. It's very nice. You know, I understand. But, 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 but what's with all these idols? So Shlomo, the Zen monk, Shlomo says to the rabbi, what do you mean idols? So the rabbi says, well, you know, all these, all these statues of the Buddha that you have around, right? So the Zen monk goes, picks one up. He says, what, you mean these? And the rabbi says, yeah, what do you have all these? I mean, meditation's one thing, but you have to keep all these idols around. So then the Zen monk goes, opens the window and throws the, the statue out the window and it crashes into pieces on the ground. 
And the monk says to the rabbi, now do that with your Torah. Right, so it's a bit of a harsh, it's a bit of a harsh story, right? I'm not recommending anyone throw the Torah out uh, out the window, but but I but I do think sometimes that uh, that the document can be idolized. In fact, if you didn't know anything and you walked into a synagogue, you might think that it's an idol. I mean, just take a moment, step outside of your own familiar experience, and just think about what happens. You know, every, everybody stands up, and there's a curtain, and there's singing, and then we bring it out. People are kissing it, and they're following it around. You know, it, it, it can be idolized. And what I want to say is the Torah, although, although this idea does exist in certain parts of the Jewish tradition, the Torah is not God. The Torah is the Torah, you know, or, or you could even say it this way. The Torah is God, but only part of God, not the whole God, right? In the same way that like each of us is part of God, but not the whole God, right? And so, so I, I'm sharing that story and I'm sharing this little thing about the Jews of Elephantine because I want to make it absolutely clear, um, despite all the things that we said and the things that I shared, um, it's an extraordinary book and it's an extraordinary book. That that's it's extraordinary. Uh, that that has that has power uh, and influence in ways that are hard to understand. And it's a book, and we have to we have to be careful. I think about that. So these days, I, I, I'm interested in, um, and this is what the next few slides are going to be about. I'm interested in. You know, I used to be interested in when I was in my, uh, you know, when I was like in school, you know, junior school and high school. I think I was just interested in trying to understand, like, what, what's going on here? You know, I just, it was so foreign to me. I just didn't know what was going on. When I went to seminary, you know, I was interested in, like, understanding the words. You know, you read interpretations and try to figure out, like, what's the deeper meaning? Um, and, and, you know, as I've kind of moved in, in my journey and my relationship with the Torah, there's a different question has kind of informed my study. And the question has been... Uh, most recently has been what would the people who wrote this book have to have known to have written it right so so not what does the text mean not not what the, not what the words mean not what, not what how can i mine it for wisdom although all those things are certainly important but the but for me the primary question is what would the uh, i'm interested in the person behind the text what would the person or the people who wrote this what would they have to know what what would have to be true in terms of their experience to have produced this document. Maybe another way of saying it is, what is the world in which this document came into being? That's, that's interesting to me. Um, it's probably interesting to me on some part because you know I'm moving through the middle years of my life and I've probably spent some time in recent years thinking about what was the world that I came into that played a formative role in the person that I was for, for some period of my life. So I imagine that question is a is kind of refracted through my own life experience. But that's the question. And so what I'm going to show you in the next few slides is, is a little bit, just a little bit of like of the world uh, in which um, I'm, I'm fairly convinced the Torah came into being. Um, and it comes from the same scholar who wrote about the Jews of Elephantine. But before he wrote, the Jews of, uh, wrote about the Jews of Elephantine, he wrote about the culture of the scribal community that produced the Torah. Okay? So he writes, first, the flourishing of scribal culture that produced the Hebrew Bible occurred in Judah or Judea 
in the second temple period, more specifically the Persian and, and the Hellenistic eras, circa 500 to 200 BCE. Okay, so this is interesting because this is after the destruction of the temple, right? There's a temple standing, a Jewish Israelite, not Jewish really, that wasn't the word, an Israelite temple standing in Jerusalem is built sometime around 1000 BCE and is destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, right? The traditional view is the Torah, the traditional orthodox, you know, inherited classical view um, is that the Torah was written sometime in the 11th or 12th century BCE, right? And that the events described in the Torah um, give us a sense of when, when these events occurred. That is, that is universally, uh, from a scholarly perspective, you know, rejected. Um, um, and the, the preponderance of scholarship says, no, in fact, it, it was actually produced after the destruction of the temple, 586 uh, BCE. So we have to understand a little bit about that, right? So first of all, the destruction of the temple is a kind of a Holocaust scale event in Israelite history, right? Estim Josephus estimates a million Israelites were murdered during the Babylonian a siege and destruction of Jerusalem and, and the taking over of the land of Israel, right? The central cultic institution, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, right? I mean, you have to just take a second and think about the impact. Well, we know, right? We're living 80 years after the Holocaust. We know the defining impact and the trauma of an event like that and the effect it has on people, right? So so that's the that's the foundation for the world in which the Torah came into being, 586. By the way, also, there's a massive exile, right? The Israelites are exiled from the land, yes? And it, it takes another two or three generations before the Israelites start to return to the land of Israel, right? Under the Persian Empire, under King Cyrus. They come back in the late 6th century BCE, start to rebuild the second temple, right? Second temple's rebuilt sometime 500, 515 BCE. So it's after this, after this period of destruction, right, that the Torah comes into being under foreign rule, right? Israelites are no longer sovereign in the land of Israel. There's no monarchy anymore. The monarchy has been destroyed, right? They're living under foreign rule. It's an occupation. Yes, the Israelites are living in occupied territories under Persian rule and then under Hellenistic rule. Okay, that's number one. Number two. In the Persian era, Judaism developed into a religion of the book. In the Persian era, Judaism developed into a religion of the book, that book being the Torah of Moses, and ultimately, by extension, the Hebrew Bible as a whole. The impetus for this development was the Hellenistic era, when books and libraries became the symbol of a nation's cultural capital, right? We all know about the Library of Alexandria, right? But you have to understand what, what's being said here, that the importance of a book, the value of a book came from a different culture. It was not, to use a word that may be anachronistic, it was not indigenous to Israelites, right? It was not an indigenous value. It was an, it was an external value that, that, that came into favor in the context uh, of, uh, of, of Persian and then Hellenistic rule. That's, that's significant. Okay, three. 
The laws of Moses received canonical status under the impetus of the Persian authorities. Check this out. In their dealings with conquered nations, the Persians sought to provide their rule with a solid base by sanctioning the codified law of the land as the law of the Persian king. Those nations that did not possess a national law were urged to create one. Okay, simple terms. The Persians were known as being fairly uh, kind, fairly generous empire, benevolent, um, because they allowed the nations that they, they, uh, they ruled to have a, a level of independence. But the deal was, if you're going to be somewhat independent, you need to have a constitution. Persian Empire said, we need to know that you're going to have a kind of a structure and an order to your society. Um, and so they set that expectation. That created the conditions not only to, to write a book, but to write a book like, as Spinoza correctly identified already in the 17th century, served as a kind of domestic constitution for the Israelites who would return to the land of Israel, right? So the value of the book and the value of law. And if you remember, you know, the Torah is, it's many things, but it's primarily, you could say, or at least significantly, a law code. There's a lot of laws in there, a lot of civic laws, right? Torts, damages, you know. Um, and so that also comes from the outside. With and, and here, the author is explicitly clear. Without the Persians, there would not have been a Pentateuch. The Persians are responsible, too, for the transformation of the Torah into the law. The context that gave rise to the production of the Torah was a Persian context. Okay, The elevation of that document into a law code uh, was a function of uh, the demands of the Persian Empire. Last point I want to make here, scribal education in the Persian period was in the hands of the Levites. This is very important, right? After the destruction of the first temple, when the Israelites come back to Israel, there's no monarchy anymore, right? There's no monarchy. So who's at the top of the, the Israelite pyramid? The priests, right? The priests are the top, not the prophets. That, you know, that, that era is past, right? No more kings. The priests are at the top, okay? And the priests uh, have a kind of scribal academy that they run. And the scribal academy, they're called Levitical scribes. The scribal academy um, is where this, uh, this, this work of producing the Torah and then the Hebrew Bible came into being. Okay, so this, this is significant, right? I'm going I'm to boil this down into, into very simplified terms, right? Uh, what this means is that the context in which the Torah came into being, one was the echo, the trauma of destruction. Right. I mean, it's already now by the fifth century, mid fifth century, it's already a uh, 150 years since the destruction of the temple. But we know 80 years after I just got an email yesterday, Jewish Family and Children's Services in San Francisco is building a Holocaust center. Right. Jews don't forget so quickly. Right. So if 80 years after we're still remembering the Holocaust, it's likely that 100, 150 years after the destruction of the temple, they still remembered the effects of that trauma, right? There's no doubt that it had a defining impact on them. Second, we know the context is one of imperialism, right? External powers, right? In informing the culture 
essentially, you know, producing a kind of syncretistic, synthetic cultural experience in which whatever indigenous Israelite life might have looked like for the previous 500 years, it's now undergoing transformation as a result of its interaction with this, this imperial culture. And the third piece, and this is critical, is the negotiation of power. You see, the priests are at the top of the pyramid, right? But they're only at the top of the Israelite pyramid. The priests are second to the Persian Empire. Yes? And the production of the Torah is, is, is essentially uh, is a, a document that negotiates the power relationship between the Persian Empire and then the Hellenistic Empire and the Israelites. Right? How do we know this, for example? Ezra. You know, there's a book in the Hebrew Bible called Ezra, right? Ezra most likely was the head of the scribal academy. He led the process of producing these documents, right? What was one of Ezra's other jobs? He was the liaison between the Israelite community and the Persian Empire, right? He was the go-between, you see? And so the production of this book was not, we, we shouldn't kid ourselves. The production of this book was not some kind of pure, abstracted, spiritual, or mystical, you know, uh, piece of art. That's in there, too. But it, in very real historical and human terms, served in a role of power negotiation between an imperial power and a group of people who have gone through a pretty extraordinarily traumatic experience in, in, in the past three, four, five, six generations. I'll just say now, sidebar, um, when, I, when I kind of did all this reading, I, I, it, it made a lot of sense to me, um, but it made more sense to me because, and you can take this or leave it, um, when I was writing that book, you know, when I was copying the Torah, I did, I did one chapter a day, I copied one chapter a day, it took about six months. Of the many things that happened while I was copying, it was this a very clear um, and sometimes uh, 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 startlingly so, very clear sense of the pathos uh, of the book. Um, you've had this experience. I mean, you've listened to pieces of music or you've looked at pieces of art or you've read certain books. You know, I recently, uh, after Harold Kushner died, you know, you know, Rabbi Harold Kushner, he wrote when, when bad things happen to good people, yeah? So after he died, I thought I would read the book again, just, you know, as an appreciation. And, uh, you know, if you read that book slowly enough and attentively enough, there's no mistaking. You can feel the emotional tenor of what's going on in that book, the pathos of, of this man dealing with the tragic death of his 14-year-old son, right? You, you can feel it in the words. It's in there. Um, so I'm telling you that, that writing the Torah one chapter a day, this context is, is very apparent. It's very apparent. And by the way, apparent in ways that you may miss it. If you sit in synagogue and you hear someone quickly reading through, you know, a, 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 a long section of the text. And also in ways that you may miss it if you engage in a kind of word by word, close exegetical reading of the text. OK, so I want to say that's the context. Right. And. Uh, but here, here's the here's the, the beauty. And I want to pause. This is in some ways always the context, you see, <laughs> right? If, if you're fortunate to have made it to adulthood and you're awake, then you know that this is always going on. 
I mean, can you open the New York Times and not see all of this playing out? Of course you can. This is what's always going on. What's extraordinary, among other things, about the Torah is in the midst of all these things that are happening, there is extraordinary wisdom. There is extraordinary wisdom. In fact, there may even be greater wisdom, right? I mean, it's those of those of us that have 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 lived through the hardship that then can look back and learn something from it and then and then pass it along. So what I want to say is that the history, which may be a yawner for some people, sometimes listening to the history is not as exciting, but I think the history um, gives us a sense of the of the context in which the reality in which the Torah came into being and uh, and maybe the reason why its wisdom, at least maybe one of the reasons why its wisdom is so deep, um, because it was produced um, in, in, that, in that cauldron uh, of the century or century and a half after that, that destruction. Um, so I wanna, I wanna um, pause there. Let me see, I know it's, it's two o'clock. Uh, I got some notes here, okay. Um, let's see. Um, how did that land with folks? Let's get a couple of comments and then, uh, and then we'll pause until next week. Any questions, any, any reactions make sense? Okay. Aglaia. Yay. Historian. I love that you dig it. That's great. <laughs> Judith that early reading of the Torah would not be, they would not accept you today as you are today by those people who mailed you that or sent you that or even taught you in those early years because they are so much at an extreme point now. The, the Torah is, it's still accepted. It is it is more except the the people of the Torah now are more ex the Torah is more accepting of them than the early people were of those that are reading it now. Well, I, you know, there I'll just is, say this. I'll just say this. Extremism uh, is a cult. Well, um, I'll just say this. Uh, you know, we're all coming along at our own pace. Um, and so, uh, um, I, um, I, on, on some level, I, it doesn't really matter to me what someone, th how someone thinks about the Torah. What matters to me is how they act. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't need someone to affirm what I just said about the historical origins of the, of the document. If, if it's important to them to believe that it was dictated by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, um, and they still treat people with kindness, then 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 that's okay with me. Of course, of course, the problem is in the other direction when people treat people unkindly or worse, and then they claim that their justification is is some document or other. But uh, there's no shortage of, of of folks like that in the world. So, uh, so that's that's incumbent upon us to try to shift the balance a little bit. But I appreciate what you said, Judith. This is there is no no shortage of people who 
believe only one thing. Fair enough. Fair and, enough. And, but their treatment of the others is not very often very tolerant. It's my way on the highway. Certainly, certainly. What do you think the first, the first scroll was? Well, that's a that's a lovely question. I mean, we do have uh, we have words and verses that are more ancient than than the fifth and fourth century. You know, we mm -hmm. have we they found a curse. They found one of the curses. You know, that goes back uh, a long way. Priest, the um, priestly blessing. Yeah, there's some uh, priestly blessing, and there's and also even even the folks who uh, who have this this kind of post destruction view of when the Torah came into being as the Torah, um, there is some sense that that maybe Deuteronomy sections mm -hmm. of sections of um, Psalms and some other sections predated the destruction, but they were used as as kind of textbooks in the scribal academy. They were used as copying documents. Um, so there's some sense of that. So this is not to say that there's nothing that predates the destruction, but what is that? And I'll, we'll say more about this next week. But what this does suggest is that that, that there is a, and, and I'll say, I'll follow this up with another comment, that, that, that there was a historical necessity, or we might be more cynical, a political necessity to, to write these stories in this way. And my, and my point is one that actually that perspective allows us to understand it more deeply in the same way as just understanding how any person is the way they are and recognizing the truth of the exigencies that gave rise to, to the type of person they are. Um, and that, and that yet, even within such a historical or political context, great wisdom can be produced. The analogy I would give, which is so obvious is that, you know, uh, is that, uh, you know, read the American Constitution, right? The, the fingerprints of the moment in history in which it was written are very clear. And there are, there are things in there that, you know, that make some of us uh, feel quite uncomfortable. And yet there is some wisdom present in that document. You know, it can be found. Um, but that's, you know, in, in, in the pantheon of documents, the Constitution is a whippersnapper com compared to the Torah. You know, the Torah has... <laughs> you know, and, and brings with it uh, the additional wisdom of having traveled all of that time in that space. Um, so, yeah, so I think uh, you said, what was the first? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, we don't know what the first was, but, but, but it's, it's kind of tragic that the earliest uh, uh, words from the Torah that we have uh, archeologically may actually be from one of the curses. It's kind of tragic. <laughs> Darren, Darren. Andy. Yeah. Uh, it had to have some preceding oral tradition. I mean, the question was how, what got woven together in particular ways. Uh, but there are obviously uh, some of the stories, some of the myths, uh, some of the laws existed orally. And it was a question of, of how and when they got woven together. Uh, the amazing point is the one you make that that wisdom that's within it uh uh when you put aside all the repetitive stuff and you know it is pretty astounding but it didn't just come out of nowhere i, I don't mean to suggest it came from god not my not my thing but it can't it there was a preceding oral tradition of some sort yeah there's no doubt and, and interestingly a lot of that uh, likely came from from other cult cultures other than the Israelite culture, of course. Yes, uh, yes. So, and, yeah. 
another uh, course, you know, this is this is about this course is about rereading the Torah. So the, the, the simple point here is that the Torah, as we know it, did come into being at a moment in time or, or over over a period of time. It's true. It had it had antecedents um, and it had con but but it came in it, the the context that necessitated it coming into being can be can be with with a fair amount of confidence can be located in time and in history and and what i'm suggesting is is and that context is significant if we're going to try to um uh develop a different way uh, another way of reading or rereading uh that text and and now i feel like uh you know like it's like a tv show and to find out more about that you'll have to come back next week Lovely to see everybody. We didn't even make it to the end of the of the first section, so this is fine. We'll we'll get to uh, spiritual handbooks and rereading uh, next week. And uh, Alex, thanks so much for your help. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.